We can all admit that we spend most of our time and our energy and our resources and our emotions seeking out for happiness, if we're honest. I think so. So this morning we're going to be talking about what is true happiness, and we find that, I think, in the entire Bible, but also today in Psalm 112. C.S. Lewis says it this way. This is in your quotes and notes. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. This morning we're going to be looking at this psalm, and I'm going to show you that True happiness is only found in a relationship, a true, genuine, healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to show you that through how this passage shows us how we should be like God, how we receive blessings from God, and we're going to see a contrast in verse 10 that is going to help us understand what false happiness can look like. So with that, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I just uh, pray that you would fill my, my heart uh, and my mouth with truth and that you would bless me in a way that I can preach truth, that you would open hearts here, open ears here, and that we would all leave here changed by the grace that we hear about in Jesus and that all of us would have a relationship with Jesus that is strengthened through it. I pray this morning that for those who are comfortable, that you would actually disrupt them for the gospel's sake, for the grace's sake, for a relationship with Christ. And those who are, um, in fact, discomforted, I pray that you offer them comfort, offer them grace. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we get started here, I want to just sort of set the stage of what's going on in this passage a little bit. As we talked about earlier, uh, as we read Psalm 111, this psalm is intimately connected with Psalm 111. So the way that we see that is there's an acrostic that is set up for this poem in both Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, and that acrostic follows the alphabet of the Hebrew Bible, so where it, each line starts with the successive letter of the alphabet. And the reason that the author or the psalmist does this is to show that this is the total, comprehensive, all-inclusive teaching on this particular subject. And that both of these have this shows us that they're intimately connected. There's a lot of repeated words. There's a lot of repeated phrases. There's a lot of repeated themes and, and concepts. And so we have to understand that Psalm 111, as we already read and talked about in prayer, is about who God is and what God has done, both in his character and in his actions. And Psalm 112 describes who are those who are like God in their character and in their actions. So in both of these Psalms, we see a picture of God's righteousness and man's righteousness. Now, before we go any further, I need to highlight the fact that you are not going to have a, a truly righteous life, and you're not going to emulate God in His righteousness. That's what Christ did. And yet, there's something for us to model our lives after Christ as well. And that's what Psalm 112 wants to highlight for us and show us that we do as God did in Psalm 111. So, this is something that we see highlighted in verse 4 of both passages. In Psalm 111, in verse 4, it says, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is what? He's gracious and merciful. In Psalm 112, verse 4, we read that He, the righteous man, the one who has a heart conformed to the ways of God, is in verse 4, gracious, merciful, and righteous. And so this passage is about God's righteousness being lived out through man. 
Ultimately, we see that fulfilled in Christ, but we should emulate our lives after that as well. So let me read this passage. We're going to start actually in verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 111, and then we'll continue through uh, Psalm 112. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So with that, I want us to start working through this passage. Uh, and it begins with this call to praise the Lord. And all of us need to understand that being like God starts with praising the Lord. Verse 1 starts by calling us to praise the Lord. And it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Intimately connected with verse 10 of the previous chapter. Mirroring it, in fact. Who greatly delights in his commandments. When he says blessed... In the Hebrew, this is a word that carries the connotation of happiness or rightness or uh, joyfulness, something that's deep and permanent and lasting. And so this is a blessedness. This is where the title of this comes from. And all of this, we have to understand, starts with the fact that we have a relationship with God. Verse 1 highlights a beautiful relationship with God. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. This fear of the Lord, we hear the word fear and we go to a place of like terror and like, it's, it's a bad word. But in this context, the fear of the Lord is a reverence. It's a reverential type of worship. It's a honoring. It's a, it's a taking the fear of the Lord, this worship, and putting it into action. And that's what we see in the next part of this verse where it talks about the, this blessed man who fears the Lord greatly delighting in his commandments. And when it talks about the commandments, he's talking about the whole Bible. He's talking about the whole beautiful story of God's redemption. He's talking about all of the commandments. He's talking about the law. And so what we see is that our relationship with the Lord is central to all of this. The blessed man has a relationship with the Lord where he both worships and he lives out of that worshipful place in the way that he engages with the world around him. He obeys the Lord's commandments. He obeys the Lord's law. And so in that, we see that this is not merely some dutifulness, not merely just obedience out of duty, but this is something rooted in deep affection and delight and love for the Lord. This is a worshipful obedience. And that makes all the difference because we can be very obedient people. And when we engage the Lord with pure obedience and no love, we call that legalism. We call that Phariseeism. We call that hypocrisy, because it's something of being a whitewashed tomb where we look good on the outside, but we have nothing on the inside except dead man's bones. And so what we see here is a beautiful picture of someone who loves the Lord and obeys their commandments. And I want you to understand, the Word wants you to understand, 
that obedience is necessary for a healthy and growing relationship with the Lord. John 14 puts it this way. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so what we see here is being like God starts with our relationship with God, but it moves from there to our relationship with the world around us as we obey all of God's teachings, all of God's laws. Because we see a summary of the law in Matthew 22, where Jesus summarizes the law and says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the entirety of the law. And so in this verse alone, we see how our relationship with God and our relationship with others is so important to emulating God's righteousness. That we have to be filled with the love of God in such a way that we worship and adore Him, but then we also translate through the Spirit that into the world around us and we bless relationships around us. I had a friend studying this passage with me and they sent me an email where they had been journaling about it, and she got to this part of the passage where it talks about greatly delighting in the Lord's commandments, knowing that that uh, insinuates obedience, and she said, you know what, I got, really, I got really bummed because I always mess it up. I always mess it up. And that's the heart of the pastor before you today as well. That should be the heart of all of us this morning, and that shows us the fact that we really can't fulfill this. And that's kind of the point of the Christian faith. That's the point of the gospel, that we actually cannot fulfill these commandments. We cannot love the Lord perfectly. We cannot delight in His commandments and obey Him perfectly. So this points us to Jesus. This psalm highlights Christ and how He actually was the man who did that perfectly. Christ is the only one who was ever truly a man who feared the Lord and delighted in his commandments and obeyed him perfectly in word and in deed. Charles Spurgeon says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And so what we have from this is an understanding that we're invited to rest in Christ's righteousness that we don't have to obtain that righteousness ourselves. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to earn. It's been given to us by Christ. He's fulfilled the entirety of the law. So he allows us to live through his own righteousness. You see, the blessed in this passage are not so because of what they do, but because of how they respond in faith to what God in Christ has actually done. And yet we are called to be like God. We may be saved by faith alone, but our faith can never actually be alone. Do you understand? So I want to make a really delicate nuance here that is between a righteous standing or a righteous status and a righteous life. Just because God sees us who are in Christ as righteous doesn't mean that we're actually living a righteous life. Our justification, our right standing with God, justification by faith alone, is how we are seen in God's sight as being fully right, having no condemnation, having no sin before Him because Christ has paid for all that. We're justified. We're fully right with God. 
And yet our sanctification is the aligning more and more of the status of righteousness and the internal and external manifestation of that righteousness in the world around us, becoming more like Christ. As we become more and more like Christ, we are going to embody that characteristic of God in our hearts and in the world around us. And so the rest of this passage kind of explains a little bit about what that might look like. And that comes in both blessings and behaviors. We're going to focus on some of the blessings, but I want to highlight one of the behaviors. One of the behaviors is really important for us to understand what it is to be righteous in the way that God is righteous, okay? As I mentioned earlier, chapter 11, or chapter 111 and chapter 112 share this concept of being gracious and merciful. And this passage shows us that through generosity, which is an element of graciousness. Ultimately, we see this chiefly in the person and work of Christ, who is completely embodying this concept of righteousness in generosity and graciousness. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You can turn here if you'd like. We're going to actually be looking at another passage in 2 Corinthians in just a minute. It says in verse 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that interesting? That is a beautiful picture of Christ's generosity and graciousness to us. And we're called to do likewise. This passage, let me highlight three verses that talk about this. We're going to look at verses 3, 5, and 9. 3, 5, and 9. It says, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. We're called to be generous people because that's who Christ was, who Christ is, in fact. In verse 5, we see this picture of generosity translated as justice. Look at that with me. It says, it is well, or in the NIV, it says, good will come to the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Ultimately, what's happening here is that this man is denying his profitability for the sake of empowering those around him. This is Old Testament. This is kingdom, justice, and equity. This is about empowering the people of God so that he doesn't benefit, but they benefit. That's generous. That's justice. That's the kingdom of God at play. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. You can also translate this where it says he's distributed freely as uh, scattering, like scattering seeds. And this is a very important part of this passage because the Apostle Paul picks it up and he quotes it in 2 Corinthians 9. That's why I want you to look once again at 2 Corinthians 9 with me as we look at how Paul uses this passage and teaches us about God's righteousness in our lives through generosity. He says this, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in 
all things at all times. You may abound in every good work as it is written, quoting Psalm 112.9 here, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Is that about God or is that about man? I think that's about both. That's about who God is, but it's also a call for us. And then he goes on to say, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's a lot. That's a lot. He's, he's modeling this picture of generosity after Christ and calling us to sow bountifully so that we can reap bountifully for the kingdom. We're emulating Christ's righteousness in that way. You see, the entire Christian life is about stewarding the grace we've been given in every form every form. One of those forms is being able to distribute our material needs to those who are lacking because all things are a gift. The generosity that the Lord has poured out on us, we're called to pour out on those around us as is needed. So being like God is being like Christ, and this is a call to be generous. If you were to put one word for what would maybe describe Jesus, you might just say selfless. There's other words, other really good words, but selfless is really a great word. The opposite of that would be selfish. And in our material possessions, in the way that we engage with our finances, we can be very selfish in the way that we save, the way that we hoard, the way that we spend. I'm not going to denounce those things and say that all those things are bad, but I am going to say that kingdom living and living our lives in a way that models after God's graciousness and righteousness looks a little different. It looks a little different. C.S. Lewis has a really great principle for this. It's on your quotes and notes as well. In, in asking yourself this question, how can I live out of generosity? How can I emulate God's righteousness in the way that I conduct my affairs financially? Consider this. He says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Friends, being like God is about learning and training ourselves to be generous. Not just in our finances, but certainly there too, but in all elements of our lives. And when we do this, and when we practice this generosity, we are like God in blessing the world around us. And that is a part of righteous living, not just a part of having a righteous standing. That's God's grace in action. So now we're going to turn in our passage to consider some of the blessings from God. And first, we have to establish the fact that the chief blessing from God is our belief in God, what we just talked about. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 have a beautiful way of putting this. I'm going to read that for us. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we see there is this beautiful beautiful description of how God has given us relationship with himself, made us righteous in his sight, and called us to do likewise. But even the things that he's called us to do, the good works, he's prepared beforehand, so we can't even take credit for that. It's Christ living through us. It's that element of grace stewardship that is coming through us into the world around us. So it's all about grace. Now, as I start talking about the blessings that we see from this passage I want to explain that this passage can, if you read it in a particular way, you could say this sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel, Brother Luke. This sounds a lot like the message that you will get from God blessings based on what you do for God. That is a false gospel because it is no gospel. That is a false teaching because it focuses on your personal earning favor with God and God returning favor to you based on what you did. That's not about grace, right? That's purely about works. We denounce that. This passage and every passage is about grace. So setting the stage just a little bit more, this passage is part of the wisdom psalms, okay? I, listen, I... I don't want this to bore you. I think this is really, really important for your future study of the Word and for you to understand this passage. This is in connection with the other wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, like Proverbs, like Job. Okay? As such, it shares a lot of themes, chiefly the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom and what that entails. So what we see is that this passage and the way that it talks about the blessings has a very proverbial sense to it. As, as in the book of Proverbs, that kind of has this oversimplified, idealistic, black and white, cause and effect observation about life. Should we discard it? Nope. Because it's very instructive for teaching us about righteousness and how there are very, very plain, very plain blessings and results from righteousness in this life. Here, here's the deal. God has orchestrated this world to work through selflessness. When we act like God, the world works better. Think about the effects of sin. Think about the effects of selfishness on relationships alone. The world works best as God would have us live like Him. And so, think of it as a result as opposed to a reward. And yet, also think of it as sort of a very wooden way of thinking about Proverbs being very black and white. So one of these blessings we see is in the family. Verse 2. Let me read that for us. He says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. But what is the impact of having godly parents who fear the Lord, worship Him, and obey Him? What, what is the impact on a child's life if you were to... Uh, Train a child up in the way that he should go such that when he is old, he will not depart from it. There is a blessing associated with living a righteous life modeled after Christ. Of course, it's not perfect. This is a life 
that would help your children be raised up with certain characteristics, such that the psalmist would say that they would be mighty in the land, mighty referring to a great respect and honor. And so then we see from this passage that there's a generational blessing, that the generation of the upright will be blessed. This is fully keeping in line what just happened up here with the covenant blessing of uh, baptism. That the generations are blessed through Christ. That the Lord is gracious and merciful to keep covenant love with his people throughout the generations. He does that of his own accord. That's grace. But he also does that through our working as parents and training children in this way. Helping them to know the Lord and to delight in him. And so as parents, we can both be... um, We can both demonstrate righteousness and we can train them in righteousness. And there is much blessing and much benefit and much good result from that. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen every time, that every good action is going to have a a great reaction. But there's a beautiful blessing associated with this. Another blessing we see is for a beautiful picture of hope in verse 4. It says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. When the psalmist says darkness, this is a metaphor that he uses to describe all the bad stuff, all the heartache, all the terrible circumstances that we go through. But he says that light itself dawns, springs up, rises up from the darkness for those who are pursuing the Lord, who love the Lord. Did you know that darkness is not a thing in itself? It's the absence of something else. Darkness is the absence of light. And isn't that a really great way of thinking about the entire world and all heartache outside of Christ and the hope that he brings? It's just dark. It's really dark. First John has a really great way of explaining how the darkness does not overcome the light but rather the light overcomes the darkness. And I would just suggest to you that we can see hope in our lives in three main ways, based on our relationship with Christ. We can see hope in the fact that God may choose to change our circumstances when we beg Him and plead with Him and pray to Him and lament to Him. He may. We can also see hope and assurance knowing That God works all things for our good and for His glory. And we can also take hope in the fact and assurance that one day we will be in a state of perfection and bliss and intimate relationship, seeing Christ face to face, where the kingdom of God is manifest fully. And so we should take great hope in these things because we have a relationship with Christ. We also see a blessing in our lives, being like Christ, from verses 6 through 8 on trust. Let's read those together. He says, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Let me stop there just for a minute. That sounds a lot like perseverance. Let me paint a picture for you. What you didn't earn in Christ, in the relationship with God, you can never lose. You have been saved by grace, sustained by grace, and you will persevere by grace alone. Verse 7. 
verse 7 and 8 has this really neat feature to it that shows this structuring that's kind of a mirror, and it highlights the trust in the Lord. Let me show you this. It says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So he's not afraid. Why? Because his heart is firm. Why is that? Because he's trusting in the Lord. So what? His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. So what? It's a beautiful picture highlighting the trust that he has in the Lord. And I take great solace in that. I talk to a lot of Christians who are going through incredibly dark, depressing difficult times in their lives. Incredibly dark and depressing, difficult times. And I would never be so cavalier as to just say, go trust the Lord. Everything's going to be fine. But friends, there is a reality that inasmuch as we can cry together and weep together, we can also encourage each other that maybe in the midst of all that darkness, the light can still shine. And maybe it's God's beautiful invitation for you to truly rely on Him and trust Him and depend on Him in a beautiful way that perhaps maybe you never have before. Perhaps. So true happiness is a truly dependent, trusting relationship on Jesus. And then we see in verse 10 a contrast. It says, The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So, what's a false happiness? False happiness is anything else. Anything that you were thinking about before the service, when I said, what do you look to for happiness? Anything besides the word Jesus is false. It's hollow, it's shallow, it cannot satisfy, it can only be temporary, whereas the true happiness, the true blessedness from the Lord is lasting and permanent. And so, who are these wicked? Well, the wicked are those who don't have a relationship with the Lord, who pursue ultimately selfish gain as opposed to selfless redemption of the world around them. And so we see that the wicked are, are opposite of the righteous. There is no fear. There is no worship. There is no delight. There is no grace and mercy. Pure selfishness. They're takers. The opposite of Christ. And ultimately, they melt away. When I read that, I think about a snowman on a hot day. The snowman is powerless over the effects of the sun that it's going to waste away, that's melting away. Such are the desires, it says, the longings of the wicked. Those who don't have a relationship with the Lord are beset with, with nothing more than really a temporary gratification, a selfishness, a taking that will ultimately consume for themselves and for their own glory and that's melting away. Another wisdom psalm says in Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's almost the opposite of what it just said in verse 10. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. What that means is that it's not the prosperity gospel. It means that the Lord is going to take our hearts and shape them in such a way that we're conformed after his own desires and God is going to bring about his desires. He's going to bring about the redemption of our own lives and the redemption of the world around us. And he may even do that through your desires being changed, through your life being changed, through your actions being changed to reflect grace and mercy in the world around you. We could call that righteousness. 
It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be messy. It's going to be covered in lucky charms. Lots of lucky charm righteousness right here. But it's something different from just having a righteous standing. Right? It's something different. Y'all, the happiest person I ever knew was this guy named Dan Gleason. Uh, Just saying his name makes me smile. Dan was the funnest guy to be around. He made you feel like you were so important. And not just to him, but that you had dignity beyond his relationship with you. Dan was also married to um, a very kind woman who for 20 years suffered from the most awful manifestation of depression I've ever heard of. I'm a counselor. I've heard of a lot of depression. For almost 20 years, this woman was so depressed that she could not engage in any sense of relationship with her own children or her own husband. She was locked, basically locked herself in our church and just read all day. It was quite sad. Dan was also probably the most selfless and godly person I've ever met. Dan was the happiest person I'd ever met. He was suffering from one of the most just awful experiences of mental illness and depression in the most intimate relationship of his life. And he still remained, quite honestly, quite, quite a manifestation of the gospel in my life. He taught me what it was to be righteous in word and in deed with lucky charms all over it. But he was a happy man. And you could tell that it was in a deep sense rooted in delight and worship, not in duty. So friends, this sermon is not about Dan. Dan just points us to Jesus. He is a very good example of how this passage can play out in our lives, even amidst the darkness. And so friends, if you want to have a truly happy life, I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus that in that relationship, you will actually become more like Jesus. And in your heart's own desires, you will find that that is conformed to the Lord's desires. And you may see yourself becoming more like Christ in the way you live amongst those around you as well. And seeing a lasting impact, perhaps, as well. Where your righteousness endures forever. And that righteousness is not yours. You can't put your name on that. That's Christ's righteousness coming through you because it's grace. And it's a beautiful story of how he brings redemption to his people out of his own purposes. So if you want a truly happy life, friends, pursue Jesus. It's a gift. Let's pray about that now. Father, we thank you.